Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science, and this is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Michael Hoffman about his new book, Faith in Numbers, Religion, Sectarianism, and Democracy. We also talk to Devorah Manikin, who, along with Tamar Mix, is the author of a new American Political Science Review article, Effective for Whom? Ethnic Identity and Nonviolent Resistance. Finally, we talked to Gregory Gauze of the Bush School at Texas A&M about U.S. relations with the Gulf and broader trends in Gulf politics. Thank you for listening to the program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Michael Hoffman at the University of Notre Dame, author of the new Oxford University Press book, Faith in Numbers, Religion, Sectarianism, and Democracy. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. It's a, a pleasure to be on here. So tell us about the book and um, uh, what you were trying to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this this book came out of my dissertation from Princeton University. It was really about a decade in, in the making, as uh, a lot of first books, I suppose, are. And the motivating question here was about the kind of political ambiguity of religion. There's There's been a lot written about the fact that religion has this Janus-faced effect on a lot of political outcomes, including democracy. And we see this really across time and space throughout the world for for much of uh, recent history that religion in some cases really seems to help promote democracy. It can help stabilize democracy. It can catalyze democratic transitions. It can make people support democracy. But on the other hand, it can have exactly the opposite effect, right? This is something that traditionally uh, pundits would would bring up in the case of of the Middle East, that religion uh, is often presumed to be an inhibitor of democracy and, and inculcates values that are, are incompatible with democracy. And my, my intuition starting uh, this project was that both of those things seem to simultaneously be true to some extent, that there are clearly situations where religion supports democracy and others where it has exactly the opposite effect. And it's not just theology that's doing the work. So even if you look within a, a, a single religious tradition, so look at the, the Catholic Church that has a very kind of clear, singular, monolithic theology as, as much as really any faith in the world does, it still, in many cases, has this seemingly contradictory effect on democracy. You see cases like uh, Poland with the, the Catholic Church's involvement with the Solidarity Movement, where the church is playing a really profound pro-democratic role. And then contrast that with cases in Latin America, where the church is, is sort of embedded in networks with authoritarian regimes. It's suspicious of democracy if it's associated with leftist movements and things like that. So my, my motivation here was trying to figure out beyond just theological explanations, why is religion having these effects that in, in many ways cut uh, in, in opposite directions from each other? And so the main argument of the book is that a part of this story, and of course it's not all of the story, but a part of this story is that we have to look at the interests of religious groups that uh, so I refer to it as sectarian groups. You could say religious denominations. The, the terminology doesn't matter too much here. But the idea is that when we look at religious groups in countries that are sort of in flux, in countries where regime type is in question, then we have to think about this partially in terms of winners and losers, that some groups will tend to benefit from democracy 
some groups will tend to lose from it. So if you have a, a smaller group that happens to be uh, more privileged, either politically, economically, or both, then they're going to have incentives to resist further democratization. Whereas if you have a larger group, such as the Shia in Lebanon, that are kind of underrepresented in politics and, and relatively neglected by the state, then there's going to tend to be a, a greater incentive from a group standpoint to support democracy. And the main argument of the book here is that when people engage in communal religious practice, so when they go to mosque, when they go to church, when they worship with other people in a public setting, it tends to push their preferences toward democracy in the direction of the interests of their group. So for a large group, a group that would benefit from democracy, people who go to mosque, go to church more, are going to be more supportive of democracy. But the other side of the coin is exactly the opposite, that if you have a group that enjoys certain privileges under the existing authoritarian regime, one that's overrepresented, one that's kind of a minority ruler, something like that, there's going to be the opposite effect where people who engage in communal religious practice are actually less supportive of democracy. So here I, I'm, I'm focused at the individual level because um, that's something that while it's been discussed more and more in the last few decades. It's something that I think historically has been neglected, especially in the sense that we don't often bring in groups as much as we ought to when we're looking at support for democracy. And so a, a big motivation for the approach that I took here was looking at how individuals are embedded within groups and how both individual level factors and group level factors can have an important role in conditioning the effect that religious behavior has on support for democracy. Now, the, the title of the book is uh, really, really well chosen, Faith in Numbers, because it really does two, di two different things, right? Um, it gets at that mechanism that's the central part of your book about communal prayer, but also uh, most of the research and, and the analysis in the book really is kind of looking at large-scale survey research of different types and really trying to, to, to get at that through different kinds of methodological approaches. Tell us a little bit about what you did and um, how you tried to get at this question. Well, first of all, let me say thank you for the, the compliment on the title. I think that coming up with that took longer than any other part <laughs> of the book. It, it went through several different iterations until I finally came up with Faith in Numbers. And actually, an interesting, <laughs> interesting story, if you look at the... Uh, Oxford University Press website, or I think even if you look on Amazon now, you might notice that the subtitle is different from what <laughs> uh, appears on the book cover. That uh, on the, the book cover on the website, it says communal prayer, sectarianism and democracy, when actually it's religion, sectarianism and democracy. That's a testament to how long it took me to settle <laughs> on this title. Um, but as for your question about the methodological approach, so as I, I said a moment ago, I, I really think that it's important to approach these questions in terms of the individual level. And, and my philosophy uh, with regard to, to that type of analysis is that we have to try to cast a wide net. We have to try to include as many voices as possible in this discussion. There's a tendency, I think, to kind of only look at elites, interview people who are activists, interview people who are, are really 
um, kind of powerful actors. And that's a really important way of looking at these questions. But I think it's better covered in the research than a lot of the individual level stuff that um, that I've, I've tried to emphasize here that, of course, a lot of the, the nuts and bolts of how regime politics works occurs at the elite level. But I think it's also really important to see how the everyday person on the street approaches these things and what some of the, the sort of uh, mundane effects of everyday behaviors like religious practice are on these attitudes. And, and as you saw in the book, I found that actually sometimes the effects are quite sizable, that uh, the, the seemingly simple act of, of going to mosque regularly can have really substantial effects on group identity and then as a downstream consequence on uh, support for democracy. Um, I also included some discussions in there, some some conversations that I had had with uh, with political leaders and things like that, as well as um, including some some open ended questions and in interviews that I had. Uh, I didn't get to do as much ethnographic work as I would have liked to uh, because of real world concerns, but. The emphasis here is looking at kind of big aggregate trends uh, without necessarily being able to say for any particular individual, this is exactly what motivates their preferences toward democracy. This is exactly what makes them tick, anything like that. I want to see how this operates on a kind of society-wide level, how these individuals being as they are embedded in these religious social groups see politics and specifically regime politics as a group consideration, as, as something that is inflected with identity, as something that affects them not only as individuals, but as members of these groups. And so people might have their individual level preferences for democracy that are based on, say, individual philosophies or economic interests or education or all of these other things. I'm sort of setting those aside here. Or, or at least holding them constant and seeing how this, this group level phenomenon of sectarian interest has an effect at the individual level and how that effect is, is channeled through religious practice. The other side of this is that I've found that this is, you know, uh, I always tell people that being someone who works on religion and politics, I'm, I'm clearly... Uh, comfortable talking about the, the topics that you're not supposed to bring up in ordinary conversation. But uh, when it comes to these issues, to, to ask sort of directly about this can be really thorny because it, it especially in, in places like Lebanon, if you're an outside researcher, especially if you're a Western researcher, there's often a, a very understandable presumption that you're coming from kind of a bad place, that you're coming from a, a hostile, judgmental place and so asking people, how does your religious behavior affect your views toward democracy and dictatorship can come across in a way that I, that I, I, really, um, I, I really wanted to avoid. And so by having local survey teams do the work, uh, I hope that I could mitigate some of those issues uh, and try to kind of get the best of both worlds. Although, like I said, uh, it would have been great to do further ethnographic work as well. You have an interesting mix of types of surveys going on to use the air barometer data. It's always good to see people mining that incredible resource. But you mm -hmm. also, you know, do your own surveys in Lebanon, uh, some interesting Facebook surveys. Tell us a little bit about those. And um, you, you were able to embed some primes and um, do some experimental approaches. So just let's talk a little bit about the different ways you tried to get at this indirectly. Yeah. So the, the air barometer has been 
an extraordinary resource for really all of us who work on public opinion in the Middle East, as you know. And so uh, it was a natural starting point. That was the the, the first place I looked to, to try to answer some of these questions. Um, it, it gave me an advantage in the Iraq chapter um, in that it made it so that I didn't have to do my own survey in Iraq, but it also did something that was essential in Lebanon, um, which is that it kind of gave me a time machine. It allowed me to look at uh, a, an earlier context when uh, the, the the way that people were thinking about sectarian regime politics in Lebanon was a little bit different, that people were, uh, were thinking of this perhaps more in a Christian Muslim lens. It was before the most recent wave of Sunni Shia sectarianism in the region and, and especially in uh, Lebanon had really taken off to the extent that it has. So using the Arab barometer gave me an opportunity to, to sort of go back in time and look at the relationships between these variables at that particular historical moment. Then when I did my own survey in 2012-2013, uh, we were able to see how things had changed, how the changing regional contexts, especially uh, in the context of the, the Syrian uprisings, which had profound effects on Lebanon, really changed the calculus here and, and made people in Lebanon think more in terms of uh, a Sunni-Shia divide with Christians kind of split, with roughly half of Christians siding with the largely Sunni bloc uh, and roughly half siding with the largely Shia bloc. The other advantage that doing the original survey in Lebanon gave was that it allowed me to ask a wider battery of questions because of course the Arab barometer has mm -hmm. uh, a really rich set of questions about all sorts of topics, which means that it can't necessarily go into quite the same level of depth on any individual topic as a, a survey specifically devoted to that topic would. So the fact that I was able to do 45 minute surveys really just on this topic was, was advantageous. The other thing that I was very concerned about was the potential for threats to causal inference, that right. the, the correlations that I found might have been spurious. It might really just be for any number of reasons that these relationships are endogenous or coincidental or, or uh, that there's reverse causation or something like that. And so um, one of the ways that I, I worked to get around that was through these priming experiments where I gave respondents um, a, a series of words of basically make them, made them play a matching game uh, in order to prime religious concepts and specifically uh, communal religious concepts. And the idea was that uh, there, that the, these primes would activate uh, a sort of communal religious mindset in the minds of respondents, make them think more in terms of group identity and thus uh, respond to democracy in a different way. And this, I borrowed this from a decade's worth of, of psychological and sociological research that's found that those kinds of primes can be effective in triggering um, kind of religious reactions. And lo and behold, it turns out that these primes work pretty similarly to the, the way that the, the observational correlational relationship between communal religious practice and group identity on the one hand and uh, attitudes toward democracy work, that when you activate these identities through these communal religious primes, it makes people feel more supportive or more uh, perhaps hesitant uh, towards democracy, depending on their group interests in a way that, that really matches up pretty closely with the observational findings. But the, the main motivation behind 
uh, those experiments was trying to see if this is a spurious correlation or if this is a real thing. As you mentioned, I also did some, some online surveys in, um, in Iraq and Lebanon uh, a few years later. And the idea there was largely to give people time to give a little bit more thought out answers about the religious experience and how it affects democracy that um, there, there were sort of, there were two advantages, I think, to doing it uh, in an online format, uh, despite the fact that it's obviously not a perfectly representative sample, especially in these countries. The two advantages, I think, were one, as I said, that it allows people to kind of think a little bit more, that they're not put on the spot quite as much, that they're able to sit there and, and perhaps ponder for a minute or two if they need to before giving their answer, which of course not everybody did based on the quality of some of the answers. Uh, but a lot of people really did seem to put some thought into it. And so I think that was helpful. And the other is that the online format provides a certain amount of anonymity, a, a certain amount of security that when dealing with these potentially sensitive topics, I think people were able to be a little bit more open, uh, a little bit more honest about it. And so the, that was, those were kind of the two main motivations behind the online surveys, which have the, the significant disadvantage of not being nearly as representative as the, the in-person in surveys. Um, but I think that they, they provided some depth and texture that wouldn't have been available just from the, uh, just from the larger and in-person survey. Now, your argument um, about uh, kind of uh, religion and democracy, you know, goes through multiple steps along the way. Um, and uh, I think the most novel uh, argument and probably the most uh, controversial one is the causal mechanism of collective prayer and, um, and, you know, the ways in which you see that as shaping or enhancing group identity and kind of in-group, out-group dynamics. Um, so why don't you talk about that a little bit in terms of, you know, how, do, how did your research convince you that, um, that this was what was doing the causal work? That's a great question. So uh, it, it started with an intuition, and it's, it's one of those things that just the, the further I looked into it, the, the, more, uh, the more it seemed to be supported by the evidence, whether it was just um, asking people about the experience, as I did in the, the online surveys, looking correlationally at relationships between religious practice and religious identity, uh, whether it was the looking at how the, uh, the primes in the survey experiment affected not only attitudes toward democracy, but perceptions of linked fate or uh, expressions of sectarian solidarity, things like that. Uh, but it's also built on existing research, particularly in social psychology, which has found that communal activities like religion, things where you're having shared experiences, where you're standing next to somebody kind of facing the same direction. You know, if you're, you're bowing towards Mecca, you're looking at your neighbors and wishing them peace. These kinds, of, these kinds of communal activities that are found in abundance in religious worship do tend to have this effect, even if it's subtle, of, of bringing people psychologically together, of making people feel like they're part of one community. And so even just acting in, in sync with uh, the people next to you, chanting the same things, giving each other responses, similar movements, coordinated movements, things like that, those have been shown 
to have actually pretty profound effects on group solidarity. Um, and so this is just one example of that. There's also potentially a, a mechanism of actual content that the types of messages that are present in sermons might have an effect in this direction. And based on some analysis of, of actual sermons that have been uh, published online or, or elsewhere, as well as the open-ended questions that I asked in Iraq and Lebanon, there does seem to be some support for that, that there, that, that uh, imams are, are often giving messages in, in the second part of their sermons that are consistent with sectarian interests, that when they talk about politics, it's often through the lens of the interests of the sect in that given country. Now, obviously, there's going to be a lot of noise there. That's not that's not a, a uniform relationship. But based on the digging that I did, it does seem to be that there are these explicit invocations of group interest, even in what are seemingly kind of non-political sermons. So um, it, it works in a variety of ways. I, my guess would be uh, if you were to somehow find a way to quantify it, that it would probably have somewhat less to do with the sermons and more to do with just the shared experience, the, the collective effervescence, as Durkheim would say. Uh, but uh, both of those seem to be at work. Some of the statistical findings are really quite remarkable. I think so. <laughs> I think so. It's, um, you know, I... Obviously, I, I was I was hopeful that there would be something there because I, I thought it was intuitive and, and I thought that there was a, a logic that that these relationships would be plausible, if not likely. And, and yeah, I think that some of the relationships certainly were stronger than I expected. So some of them, especially the, the short term effects of the primes were stronger than I expected them to be, because mm -hmm. you kind of think of these things like attitudes toward democracy or uh, perceptions of linked fate as being pretty durable. And one of, the, one of the bits of significance in these findings is that sometimes these effects can be pretty short-lived. That um, in one section of, of the book, I, I talk about how this sense of linked fate clearly works in two ways. There's one that there's the immediate effect that just having these concepts brought to mind has a, a, a pro-linked fate, pro-solidarity, effect. But the fact that these primes work also indicates that they must wear off mm -hmm. because otherwise people are faced with these kinds of primes all the time. The fact that they work in the short term means that they're, they're, that they wear off at some point. But observationally, the fact that you see such a strong relationship between overtime attendance and uh, sectarian solidarity indicates that there is also a cumulative buildup effect. So I, I think of this as, you know, mm -hmm. like some medicines, for instance, where there is an immediate effect in the short term that wears off, but then also if you keep receiving it over time, it has a, a cumulative buildup effect uh, as well. So you test, um, you test this in the book, uh, primarily in two countries, uh, Lebanon and Iraq, which are both, um, you know, kind of, uh, Sectarian, sectarian countries, highly institutionalized sectarianism, um, and uh, ones where you actually have this clear sectarian valence to politics. Um, what, let's choose. Well, let's do Lebanon um, and talk us through in a little more depth how you see this playing out um, in terms of this priming and uh, you know attitudes towards democracy. Sure. Yeah, Lebanon. So Lebanon was a natural case because it's sort of 
the country to study when you're talking about sectarian institutionalized politics because it's had this system in place since 1943 where uh, positions of political power are allocated according to sec that you can you know barring constitutional change there's nothing that can happen at the ballot box that will change the number of sunnis in parliament the number of shia in parliament or the sect of the prime minister or the president or so forth all of those are, are set in stone in the current constitutional arrangement so in that sense it's both an easy and a hard case i think it's it's easy in that as you pointed out it's so institutionalized sectarianism is is such an important feature of political life that of course you're going to see sectarian interests matter. At the same time, there are ways in which it's a hard case because you would think that in a country where sectarianism is so prominent on kind of an everyday level that it affects everything about the way that people interact with political institutions, you'd think that you wouldn't really be able to see these effects. You'd think mm. that there would be kind of a ceiling, that everybody would always be primed for sectarianism, that sectarian solidarity would be a universal thing. I certainly shouldn't be able to heighten sectarian solidarity by having them play a quick word game. So in that sense, I think it's, it's also sort of a hard case, but it really highlights the mechanisms well, I think, that you have a group particularly in the Shia. So for now, I'm talking about the, the second Lebanon chapter, the post-Syria, uh, post-Arab uprisings chapter, that you have a group, the Shia, who have historically been really marginalized in Lebanon. It's gotten somewhat better over the past several decades, but I present evidence in there that Shia are still really kind of neglected by the state. The average Shia has 45 minutes less electricity in a typical day than the average uh, member of another sect, that's significant. Uh, there's generally still lower income level, levels, much lower levels of home ownership, uh, lower levels of public sector employment, and perhaps most obviously, um, a, a demographic imbalance relative to political representation that uh, the Shia, when the formula was developed for Lebanon in terms of representation by sect, the Shia were much smaller as a share of the population than they are today. Estimates now range from uh, 40 to 40% to perhaps uh, some people say that Shia might be an outright majority in the country. That's, that's probably an exaggeration, but they're certainly much larger than what they were uh, in the last census in 1932, which is what their current allocation is, is mostly based on. So if we think of democracy as being kind of, uh, you know, the, the one person, one vote formula, something that's at least semi-proportional, then a move towards real democracy, that is non-sectarian democracy, would certainly benefit Shia. Um, and that would come arguably at the expense of both Christians and Sunnis. And um, I, I, one wrinkle that I add to this is that it's more complicated for Christians because Christians are potentially kind of a a kingmaker in that they can coalesce with either the Sunnis or the Shia, depending on, uh, on who's kind of willing to give them what they want. So it really becomes starting in 2011, especially arguably 2008, but really 2011 moving forward from there really becomes a Sunni Shia thing where there are clear incentives for Shia to favor more democratization in terms of desectarianization whereas there are incentives for, for Sunnis, and you've seen a lot of Sunni political leaders emphasizing this, 
there are a lot of incentives for Sunnis to resist change to the current sectarian system, to try to keep things the way they are, because a movement towards more representative democracy, more proportional representation would really work against their interests. Maybe one last question then is once you move outside of these uh, kind of uh, highly divided sectarian uh, contexts, how does you, how do you think your argument travels in terms of communal prayer, attitudes towards democracy or political attitudes more generally? That's a great question. Uh, that's, that's something that, as you know, I tried to tackle in the, the conclusion, but, but I have to be very tentative there because I, I think that the, the honest answer is that the slopes are clearly much flatter in countries that look less like Iraq and Lebanon, that um, in countries where religious identity politics is not as prominent or as in countries where democracy is kind of more firmly established, you're not gonna see as strong of relationships, at least in terms of attitudes toward democracy. Something that I'd like to look into more going forward is if we can see this um, in a, a broader cross-national context, if we expand the scope to look not just at attitudes toward democracy, but attitudes toward other political issues right, as well. Right. If religious identity politics is prominent in some countries more so than others, it might translate into not just attitudes toward democracy, but attitudes toward any other political outcome that we might be interested in. It'll be interesting to see how you, how that uh, could be extended and developed as you go along. Um, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, congratulations on the book and um, thanks for taking the time with us. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. And on this week's article segment, we talked to Devorah Manikin of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, who, along with Tamar Mitz of Columbia, is the author of the new APSR article, Effective for Whom? Ethnic Identity and Nonviolent Resistance. Devorah, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be on the podcast again. So tell us about this fascinating article. Absolutely. So... The article grew out of a tension that we felt between a growing empirical literature on nonviolent resistance and the strong message emerging from that literature that nonviolence is much more effective and successful at generating social political change than violence. And at the same time, what we knew from our environments and what is known by many activists, that resistance by some people, some bodies, is perceived as more violent no matter what they do. And you can go to various areas of literature to find evidence for this, and we could talk more about that later. But I think it's very um, easy to find examples in our own surroundings, right? So we can think of well-known turns of phrase like driving while black in the United States or in the Israeli context, um, referring to appeals to international bodies as diplomatic terrorism, where you see how it's not the activities, but the actor that's leading to a perception of violence. So the question that immediately arises is if nonviolent resistance by some groups is understood as violent, will we still see this nonviolent advantage when they resist? So this tension is where we began. Um, we wanted to see whether we can empirically corroborate our intuitions about how nonviolent violent resistance by ethnic minorities is perceived and also examine whether they still benefit from this uh, advantage. So tell us how you went about trying to explore that then. Sure. So the first thing we did was we looked at existing data to see what happens to the relationship between campaign tactics. Um, so whether they are violent or nonviolent and the probability of success 
when you take into account the role of ethnic identity. So here we rely on pathbreaking efforts by Erica Chenoweth and colleagues um, uh, who yeah, you know, is credited with this very important finding. Um, and for violent you know, and nonviolent campaigns, we looked at the, her NAVCO data. And to code ethnic identity, we rely on the EPR uh, ethnic power relations data sets. That's vote et al. Um, and these two data sets had already been combined and merged and shared by Chess Thurber, who just had a book come out on civil resistance. So we were able to, you know, fortunately for us, we were able to use this merged data set to see whether the relationship between tactic and probability of success is conditional on ethnic group identity. And what we find indeed is that the advantage of nonviolence is there but only for ethnic majorities or only for dominant groups. Um, for ethnic minorities or marginalized ethnic groups, you see no relationship between nonviolence and success. So to be clear, that's not to say that we find violence is more successful, but rather that neither are particularly successful and that nonviolence doesn't confer an advantage. So that's empirically where we begin. And then it's an important thing there that you're not just talking about ethnic group difference. It's the hierarchical relationship that really does the work here. That's exactly right. We're thinking about this in terms of ethnic power hierarchies. So I use the words uh, or the term ethnic minority kind of as shorthand, but we looked at in this analysis I just described at ethnic minorities by size, but also by status. Mm -hmm. So these would be excluded ethnic groups regardless of their size. That's correct. Um, so once we had that, finding that that kind of stark difference, uh, we set out to try to understand why. And uh, that's what we did using a series of survey experiments in the United States and Israel. So tell us about these survey experiments, then. Uh, this was quite, sure. a, it's, it's quite a quite an experiment you set up. Yes. So we conducted two studies. Um, the first was uh, both in the United States and Israel. So we did those both twice. Um, at the end of 2018, early 2019, and then the second study uh, we conducted in the summer of 2020. So just as this massive wave of Black Lives Matter protests was spreading across the United States. Um, there's a lot of detail to the studies that I won't go into, but in general, what we did in both waves was uh, present survey respondents with a vignette, a, you know, a story about a protest. And then we manipulated a number of features of the protest. Most importantly, who is it that's protesting? Are they members of a majority ethnic group or minority ethnic group? So in the United States, uh, that meant we manipulated whether protesters were white or black. And in Israel, we looked at two minority groups, uh, Jewish Israelis of Ethiopian origin and Palestinian citizens of Israel. And of course, all three of these groups represent very different histories and circumstances of exclusion and discrimination. So the idea was that if we could still find similar patterns across these three groups, we'd be more confident in the generalizability of our findings. So survey respondents read about a protest by you know, whoever, whichever group they happen to be assigned to. And after reading, we asked them how violent they thought the protest was, uh, how much they thought the protest required policing. We also gave them a list of tactics and asked them what, which of these tactics were used in the protests. And some of them had been used, some of them had not. Uh, the idea was to see whether people remembered protests in different ways. Do they remember them as more violent than they actually were? And then finally, we asked an open-ended question about attitudes towards the protest. Uh, and that allowed us to then analyze whether people talk about or think about, talk about the protests in different ways depending on who's participating in them. 
And so when you look at this, then you see some really interesting uh, trends that emerge in terms of violent versus nonviolent with, uh, you know, with this racial divide real, or ethnic divide coming through quite remarkably clearly. Yes, very strongly, consistently, and robustly. Uh, the main finding across all three groups, across both waves, is that protests, peaceful protests by minority group members are perceived as more violent, recalled as more violent, and perceived as requiring more policing, again, when engaged in identical nonviolent resistance to uh, the protest by uh, majority group members. Um, so that's kind of our main uh, experimental finding. And because we asked open-ended questions, as I said before, we could also uh, go deep, more deeply into what's driving these effects. Um, so we looked at these responses, both in a qualitative way and, and also using automated um, analysis. And what we found was in general that respondents use very different words to describe peaceful protests by majorities and peaceful protests by minorities. Uh, for majority protests, they use words that, you know, like expression, uh, peaceful, nonviolent, or legitimate. Um, and for minority peaceful protests, they would use words like riot, violence, and destruction. And these are, you know, these protests are depicted as completely peaceful, right? People are just marching in the street. Um, when you look into the types of comments people made, they might say something like, oh, these things always start out like this, but they end up being really violent or, you know, they, they kind of don't believe the peaceful story that we're telling them. They impute violence to these um, protesters. So to us, that really provides evidence for the stereotyping mechanism um, that we posited. I didn't I didn't discuss this, but we, we explain this as, uh, yeah, as effects of negative stereotyping. Now, when when there actually are violent tactics, though, you don't really see any difference at all. That's right. So um, in one of the studies, in addition to manipulating ethnicity, we also manipulated uh, tactic. So um, we looked at three tactic levels that are increasingly disruptive, marching in the streets, uh, blocking traffic. And then the most disruptive was um doing damage, you know, dependent on the context. In Israel, your typical protest da damage is um, uh, burning trash cans. In the United States, it might be shattering police car windows. Uh, so the vignettes kind of were, you know, sensitive to context. But the idea is that they were disruptive. And, and what we found in, in study one is that when we depict protesters as disruptive and violent, we don't really see much of an effect for ethnicity. So if you're white and violent, you'll be perceived as violent. And if you're black and violent, you know, or Arab or, or Ethiopian, um, you'll be perceived as violent. When do we see this big difference? It's when you're peaceful. So um, that is when we see what uh, Tamara and I call this public opinion tax, um, that uh, you are being perceived as more violent when you're actually completely marching peacefully. So let's bring this full circle then, you know, what are the implications then for, um, you know, the study of nonviolent resistance? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's a number of implications. I think first, um, in terms of how, you know, as scholars, maybe I'll start with kind of scholars and then move to citizens, right? Uh, as scholars, I think it prompts us to, um, to think more about uh, the categories of violence and nonviolence and to what extent these are objective stable categories um, or to what extent they're actually uh, quite contingent and you know, subjective and often downright biased. Um, so uh, 
you know, to challenge this objective categorization of what violence is. Um, I guess another implication is that, uh, you know, for any of us who are sort of interested in or following cases of contentious politics, we know that minority groups are often um, criticized for not being nonviolent enough. Um, you know, in our cases, you know, why are they rioting or where's the Palestinian Gandhi or, you know, um, uh, urge to be less violent and um, criticized for not being nonviolent enough. Here, we're trying to emphasize that uh, even when folks are behaving nonviolently, they're not being perceived as such. So the idea is maybe we need to shift our attention from this constant discussion of activist action to the broader public and our biased perceptions and how that also might actually impede nonviolent mobilization because um, nonviolent mobilization, the literature tells us, really requires broad support. Uh, if, if our biases are, are preventing this broad support, then, then that might have consequences for the degree to which nonviolence is even you know, feasible or likely to be successful. What's interesting is that while you do have your your um, your, your your framing device, it, you don't have like the um, like the Fox News effect or kind of like the media, you know, portraying them in these violent ways. So it's it's surprising in a, in a way that the finding is so robust, even in the absence of that kind of incitement or that kind of, um, you know, portrayal. Yeah, that's right. I think media is a big part of it, which in this paper we completely, uh, you know, left out. So obviously, in reality, um, these campaigns would typically be filtered through some sort of source that would either amplify these effects or right. Um, here we want because we wanted to get at a stereotyping mechanism and really look at public opinion. Um, we portrayed it in sort of a you know factual way without all the additional layers of media framing. But I think. Definitely, media framing is another is an avenue, you know, for future work and also for existing where people people have actually uh, looked at this, of course. In terms of going back to the implications for nonviolent resistance, um, I mean, yeah, this, you know, where's the Palestinian Gandhi? And, you know, we, we've seen that trope uh, often repeated. And so one of the implications of your work uh, or, or of this study would be that the Palestinian Gandhi wouldn't have any success because he wouldn't be perceived that way. Um, and so in a sense, how do you, what, is there a way to challenge that in a way by reframing it away from ethnic demands or that, or do you see it as so hardwired that, um, it's just, uh, a tactic that's not available to minority groups? Yeah, I think that's a great question. First, I'll say that people often, you know, tell me that, oh, well, this is really depressing. Um, I think because of the hardwired implications, um, but to that, I'll, I'll say two things. One is that um, I, I think before, but, you know, it's depressing, but I think it might also be deeply validating um, for, you know, when, when we first shared these results on Twitter, I was amazed by the engagement from groups in really, really disparate contexts of contention, you know, in Myanmar and in Spain and across the globe, because people know these 
this to be deeply true, right? No, in their exactly, bodies. Exactly. Um, right. This is not, you know, I'm not like shocking anybody by, by revealing this, but it's sort of, it, it provides, I think, validation. So that's, you know, step one. But in terms of, okay, now what? Are we just stuck in this loop? Um, I, I That's a question that I'm very concerned with as well. So for instance, one uh, project that we're currently working on as a follow-up is, okay, if, if, you know, given these effects, what happens when we have multi-ethnic coalitions? Or how do we think about the politics of allies, right? Um, can that make a difference? Uh, so that's kind of one way uh, in, you know, um, to maybe address this. Media, as you said, can we sort of frame our way out of this with, um, is another, I think, uh, interesting avenue. How the government responds in elite politics more generally, which is something I don't get into at all, or we don't get into at all here. Um, which doesn't necessarily have to mirror public opinion is I think another avenue for potential change. Well, it's really interesting work. Uh, I wanna thank uh, Devor Manikin um, and uh, Tamar Mitz for uh, talking about their article. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mark. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topical segment, we're joined by Gregory Gauss at the Bush School of Texas A&M. Uh, Gregory, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So we've been following uh, the change in relations between the U.S. and uh, its allies in the Gulf for quite some time. You've been writing about this for quite some time. And you know, thinking about what's happened over the last uh, few weeks with the Houthi attack on the UAE, the United States deploying uh, advanced weaponry there, how do you read what's going on right now in terms of that relationship? I mean, I think that, the, you know, it's an interesting start, the, the, the Houthis attacking the UAE, they, they've attacked uh, Saudi territory numerous times, but the fact that they could get drones into the UAE is, I think, uh, you know, a sign of their their technological uh, prowess on this and, and also of the help that they're getting from the Iranians. So, I mean, it, it does emphasize how important the Yemen conflict is for general security in the region and how some kind of negotiated settlement to it would, would I think, help everybody out. But setting that aside, uh, I, I do think that that the the Houthi attacks on the UAE demonstrate the effectiveness and the importance for the Gulf states of the American military connection. Uh, this gets into the whole question of is America leaving? Which I think if you if you ask anybody in the Gulf, uh, they'll tell you America is leaving. America is abandoning us. This is the end of the American commitment. In the same way that. Uh, maybe uh, during the George W. Bush administration, uh, folks in the Gulf were, were uh, worried that, that uh, Bush was going to drag them into a war they didn't want to fight against, first against Iraq and then against, against Iran. I think there's always in the Gulf uh, uh, an exaggeration of where they think America is going. Uh, and I think that that's characteristic of, of states that are. Uh, dependent on other states for their security. Uh, they, 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 uh, you know, uh, they, they either feel they're going to be uh, entrapped into conflicts they don't want to fight, or they feel they're going to be uh, abandoned, right? This is, you know, you can, you can refer to international relations theory, right? And, and the, the entrapment versus abandonment syndrome of, of small allies, of weaker allies. Uh, who was that? Who, that was uh, a Glenn Snyder, right? Glenn Snyder. Yeah. 
So go back and read Glenn Snyder and you'll find out exactly what uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states are, are thinking. Thank you, IR Theory. One of the things which is really interesting here about the sticking with the, the Yemen war for a minute is that at some level, you see the internationalization of it, right? When Saudi Arabia and the UAE go in, there's this kind of expectation of impunity and it's just them going after this weaker, you know, back backdoor neighbor. Um, and over the last couple of years, you've seen the, the Houthis fairly intentionally and strategically internationalizing the conflict. And now people are calling it terrorism, but I mean, this is more like the internationalization of the war, which is something very different. We have, don't really have a lot of experience with that sort of conflict. Yeah, what we what we don't have a lot of experience with, I think, is, is non-state actors who originally were fighting in a civil war, choosing to extend, you know, their offensive operations against, against other state actors. And, and you know, uh, setting aside the whole issue of, of who's right and who's wrong, and are the Houthis legitimately doing this because of what the Saudis and the, and the Emiratis have done to them, it is kind of unusual to see a non-state actor uh, initiate, you know, that, yeah, they receive blows from international actors, but for them to initiate blows against international actors is really unusual. And, and I think that to some extent, aside from just the, you know, the regular desire to demonize your enemies, that's kind of why some people put the terrorism label on it, right? Because when you think about, uh, about state violence, you know, we don't, we tend not to call it terrorism or we call it state terrorism or state violence, right? And it's, we kind of reserve the, the term terrorism for non-state actors. And even though the Houthis control, you know, a large swath of Yemeni territory now, they are a non-state actor. And I think that that, that makes it interesting, but it also makes it, you know, it, unusual. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, not, not a whole lot of precedence here. I suppose the precedent might be something like Hamas in Gaza. Yeah, I think I think so. And, and Hamas, right. The difference, of course, is that Hamas is not actively fighting a civil war against Fatah anymore. Right. Uh, and and Hamas is, you know, no one no one recognizes Hamas as as the government of Gaza. But, you know, they get foreign aid from Qatar and, and the Israelis basically deal with them as if they are the 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 controlling power in that bit of territory. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that's an interesting, that's an interesting uh, comparison. I'm trying to think of some non-Middle East comparison right. to that. It, not one, there's not one that immediately springs to mind. Let's get back to the, you know, the point you made a, a few minutes ago about alliance theory and, um, you know, kind of the, the changing perceptions of the U.S. security guarantee. I mean, from the, from the attack on Abqaiq in Saudi Arabia to uh, this attack now, does this increase or decrease uh, Gulf uh, perceptions of, of U.S. security guarantees? I think Abqaiq certainly decreased Gulf uh, uh, perceptions of U.S. security guarantees. I mean, this is the United States for decades said that the whole reason that it was in the Persian Gulf was to, quote unquote, protect the free flow of oil. Uh, and the, the attack on Abqaiq was the biggest assault on the free flow of oil since Saddam Hussein set the Kuwaiti oil fields on fire back in 1991. Uh, and the United States, in essence, didn't do anything. So I, I think that that really, uh, and I think we saw the reactions, right? We saw the Saudis start to talk to the Iranians. We saw the UAE start to talk to, directly to the Iranians. 
the Saudis indirectly through the Iraqis and through that, that Baghdad mediation and the UAE sending delegations over to, to Tehran to talk to the Iranians. So that, I mean, that, 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 speaks, that speaks pretty loudly, I think, to what the immediate reaction among the countries that have been most publicly identified with the Trump administration's maximum pressure policy on, on, on Iran. But I think that the Houthi attacks on the UAE and on Saudi, for that matter, kind of uh, reemphasize the, the, the dependency of the Gulf states on the U.S. security tie, because the Russians, the Chinese, nobody else can supply them those anti-missile uh, uh, systems, uh, at least in, 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 in real time, to to, to actually uh, respond to and deal with this new level of threat from, from the Houthis. Now, this is all happening in the, uh, in the shadow of the, the U.S.-Iran negotiations, P5 plus one negotiations with Iran about returning to the JCPOA. Yeah, how, do, how do you see the Gulf thinking about that right now? Do they see it as a fait accompli? Are they still trying to challenge it? Can they live with it? So I never thought that the Gulfies were all that opposed to JCPOA. Uh, on the nuclear side, I, I, I think that uh, it would be a mistake for us to conflate the Israeli opposition to JCPOA with the Gulf opposition, right? The Israeli opposition was about the nuclear issue itself. I think it was wrongheaded that, that, that but they said, uh, the Netanyahu government said, this doesn't really stop the Iranian nuclear threat. I think that the Gulf states basically saw the nuclear deal as something they they wanted. It pushed back Iranian nuclear, uh, the possibility of an Iranian nuclear breakout. What the Gulf states worried about was the non-nuclear elements of what they saw as the Iranian threat. And they thought that this was the time to use use leverage to to do something about the Iranian regional role. That was, uh, Mm -hmm. I think they were were wrong that there was much leverage on that. So where are we now? I, I don't think that you were going to see significant Gulf opposition to a return to JCPOA, but I think that what you're going to see the Gulf saying, Gulf states saying to the Americans is, you know, you, President Biden, said it was going to be JCPOA plus, right, and that we were going to engage on missiles, we were going to engage on regional behavior. What are you going to do about that? I mean, to some extent, you know, who cares what the Gulf states say about a return to JCPOA? They can't stop it. They can't do anything about it. They're policy takers, not policy makers on this. And so I, 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 I think that the, the Gulf states knowing that will, will be in the same position they were uh, in the Obama administration, which is they publicly supported JCPOA, no matter how much they grumbled to newspaper, American newspaper reporters, right? They publicly supported JCPOA, and then they just said, well, what about these other things? Well, the other part thing that obviously is happening in the Gulf, which is um, kind of unusual, has been uh, the, the Abraham Accords, the growing uh, strategic uh, co- coordination between Israel, Bahrain, the UAE. Um, how, do you, how do you read this in terms of the Gulf kind of repositioning itself within this changing environment? Yeah, I, I, you know, most people say that the Abraham Accords are a, a factor of American withdrawal from the Gulf and the Gulf states have to rely on local, local partners since they can't rely on the U.S. I actually read it 180 degrees differently. Uh, I always thought that every Arab state agreement with Israel was at base an Arab state uh, uh, 
outreach to the United States. I think that that deals with Israel, uh, while interesting in and of themselves and important in the long term for Israeli legitimacy as a as a regional actor, have as their immediate goal a, an outreach to the United States. And it, it seems to me that that's what it was for Morocco. That's what it was for Sudan. And that's what it is for the UAE and Bahrain. For, for the UAE, it was repositioning themselves uh, for a possible democratic administration, but also giving a favor to a Trump administration that really wanted this deal and you know, might get reelected. Uh, and I think on the Bahraini side, very similarly, it was, uh, uh, I don't wanna say a favor, but it was in response to the Trump administration saying, we really want you to do this. And the Bahrainis say, well, we rely on you. Okay, we'll do it. And, you know, there's some, there's some secondary implications to this about just what the salience of the Israeli-Palestinian issue is in the rest of the Arab world these days that, you know, one could, might be the, might be the topic for another podcast. But, uh, but I think for, for, in terms of the Gulf states, I still see the Abraham Accords very much as being directed as much at strengthening their position with the United States as with uh, Israel. But if there's any uh, a Gulf state which needed to buy its way back into American good graces, it would be Saudi Arabia. How do you interpret their uh, not signing on to, uh, to the Accords, at least not yet? Yeah, I think, I think that's all leadership politics. Uh, King Salman is uh, you know, not in day-to-day, doesn't manage the day-to-day affairs of the kingdom. That's, that's very clear. Mohammed bin Salman does that. But on issues that he really cares about, he can yank MBS back, and he publicly yanked him back on the, on the Israel issue. I, think, I, I actually think the Saudis probably will follow uh, the Emiratis and the Bahrainis on this, but not while King Salman's alive. So what does this look like then in terms of the broader kind of architecture of the Gulf? It's been it's quite noticeable, um, quite remarkable, the, the speed and the, shall we say, alacrity with which the UAE rebuilt its ties with Turkey and Qatar after um, really aggressively demonizing them for four years. Um, so how do you see this as kind of a lasting kind of rebuilding of the GCC, or is it the sort of thing which we could see change again on a dime once more? Oh, I think it could change on the dawn. Uh, I do think the more important Emirati outreach between those two, Qatar and Turkey, was to Turkey. Uh, you know, what you hear from the Emiratis now is we want to refocus on, on, you know, our economic role in the region, which, you know, implicitly means we're going to take a less forward military role in the region. And, they, you know, they were very forward, not just in Yemen, but also in, uh, in, in, uh, in Libya. In, play, in playing a direct military role. So I, I, I do think that to some extent, the Emiratis realized that they had overextended. Uh, and, and, um, and I think that that's what we're seeing. Uh, with, the, with the Saudis, I, I, I think that there's also some rethinking of what was a very kind of bumptious and aggressive uh, foreign policy stance when uh, MBS came into power you know, very confrontational toward Iran, the, the use of direct military force in Yemen, which, you know, for the Saudis, Yemen has always been an, an arena that they've played into indirectly through their connections with various domestic political actors in Yemen. I mean, that had been the Saudi modus operandi in Yemen for decades. And 
kind of direct military intervention was not something that they did. So I think that the, the Saudis are probably reassessing the, the, uh, the costs of this aggressive policy. And that, that also include kind of more opera booth stuff like, like uh, kidnapping Saddle Hariri back in 2017 and making him resign. And, and you know, more serious blunders uh, and crimes like the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. I think that there, there, there's a reassessment going on about the, the costs of these kinds of aggressive policies. Do you think we're back in a place or will we ever be in a place where the GCC is a kind of a functional um, international institution again, or are you just still a realist that doesn't believe in international institutions at all? Well, you know, what, did James, what was the last James Bond movie or not the last one, but one of the ones never say never, right? Somebody asked Tom Brady if his, if his retirement was, you know, permanent and he said, never say never. So I, I'm not, I'm not going to say that the GCC is, is permanently disabled. I think that it's always been a useful, uh, a, a useful vehicle when all of the countries who are members of it agree on something. It was a useful vehicle during the during the uh, the Gulf War of 1990-91. It's been a useful vehicle for those countries to cooperate on uh, internal security issues, uh, frequently at the at the expense of of Gulf dissidents who might have might be living in you know another Gulf country. Uh, and so I I think that like all international institutions, when they are useful for uh, the member states involved, we'll see them revived. And I think that, that that's the case in the GCC. Right now, I think there's still a fair amount of distrust uh, among the member states. And, uh, and, and then the perennial nervousness among some of the member states about the Saudi leadership role that I, I, I don't see the GCC as, as providing a, an important, being a, an important political actor in the near term future. So one last question, you know, in the last 10 years, we've seen generational change in a number of, of the Gulf monarchies and in several others like Kuwait, we're very close uh, to seeing that uh, and Bahrain. Does it matter uh, that we have this new generation of leadership? My first impulse is to say no, uh, in that uh, the structural realities of these polities don't change. Uh, no, whether the ruler is, is you know, 35 years old or 75 years old. They are oil dependent economies with all the pluses and minuses that that brings. They are, uh, even Saudi Arabia, they are security dependent on outside powers. Uh, and so I, I, I don't, think of the younger generation coming into power as profoundly changing these realities that are, you know, beyond the capacity of these states to change. But where I could be wrong about this is on domestic social policy, because there does seem to be in the younger generation, and MBS is, the, I think, the, the most obvious example of this, a, a willingness to kind of uh, go beyond what their fathers and uncles were willing to do in terms of social freedoms, the role of women in society, uh, the role of public entertainments, all those kinds of things. And in that sense, maybe this is a little catching up with where their populations, you know, very young populations in all of these places, where their populations have been going kind of ahead of 
the political order. So that might be the one area where generational change might actually, it's more catching up with the population than meeting the population. Well, that's really interesting. It's always great to talk to you, Greg. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Mark.